guys. It's good to see you. Welcome to St. James. Uh, welcome to everybody who's watching on the live stream too. I'm glad that you guys are with us. Give me two minutes to do notices real quick. This will be real short, I promise. 
So I should have changed this in the schedule, but I'm not, I, I didn't do it, and now I'm going to do it right now. After the worship service this morning, we're not going to be getting back here uh, together at the church anymore today, because I'm going to um, spend time with my family, as uh, hopefully some of you guys will be as well. So no youth uh, catechism class right after this, and then no evening prayer tonight at 5.30, okay? Also, no youth group Tuesday night. I know a bunch of the teens are here, but a bunch of them are also in Minnesota uh, with all the youth leaders. So uh, uh, no youth group uh, this Tuesday evening. Uh, screw tape letters study. Uh, let me know if you want to be part of that. You can look at the other announcements if you want to. Uh, be aware that July 11th, we're going to be doing a one-day VBS this year, kind of uh, easing our way back into uh, VBS, VBS land. Maybe next year we'll get back to a, a whole week. Uh, Jen Weber will be giving us more info on that coming up. Okay, um, new members class. If anybody is interested in new members class, uh, we're going to start one up here. Um, it's going to be this summer. It, it, it's not going to be in the next couple weeks, uh, but we're going to be starting that up. It's going to be on Sunday evenings at whatever time is most convenient for you guys. 6.30 to 8 is what we did last time. If that works, we'll probably just stick with that. Anybody who wants to come is welcome to come. If you're thinking about Christianity, uh, for those of you who are visiting and you're wanting to uh, maybe get some questions answered about what we believe and teach here, it is not a, there's no commitment. You can come and hang out and leave whenever you get irritated with me. Uh, it's no commitment to sign up. Uh, if you are a member here, uh, you're also more than welcome. We usually at that have a, uh, at least uh, four or five people who are members who just want to come and uh, meet people and uh, think about theology and eat donuts and things like that. Let me know if you want to be at that, and then we'll start finding out what time works best for us, though. So, um, and again, no rush on that. Um, it won't be at least for a few weeks, but let me know if you're interested. Okay, let's go ahead and stand and pray, and then uh, we will continue worshiping. Father, we need you so much. We, uh, you know how prone our hearts and minds are to wander from you. You know how easy it is for us to trust um, things besides you, to trust our own plans, to trust our own philosophical presuppositions. And uh, God, we need you to shape and mold us into the people that you want us to be. And so we're asking you this morning in the name of your son, Jesus, that you would pour your Holy Spirit out on us and bind us to yourself. Come here and meet with us. We need you. We don't need knowledge of you, a head knowledge of you. We don't need a great worship experience as much as we need you here with us personally. And so we pray that you would come and meet with us. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let us confess our sin to God, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Be the God of your people today. We confess that we have worshipped too many other gods. We have devoted ourselves to all too many different values. Turn our hearts to you again, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Be the God of your people today. We confess that we have visited all too many sanctuaries. We have tried to find the sources of life in all too many other places. Turn our hearts to You again. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, be the God of Your people today. We turn to You and to You alone to be our God, our only God. Forgive our sins. Give us spiritual integrity. Give us wholeness and holiness. Answer us in the name of Christ, for He has promised to intercede for us. 
It is in Him that we pray in the fellowship of His body. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the Gospel of Christ from 1 John chapter 2. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He's the expiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Amen. Please remain standing for the opening hymn. for this morning is Psalm 107 and uh, relates strongly to the gospel reading. You'll see when we get there. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still 
and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and He brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol Him in the congregation of the people, and praise Him in the assembly of the elders. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. So the reading from Job, Job chapter 38, it's right at the end of the book of Job. And if you're familiar with Job, for uh, the whole first part of the book, Job is confused as to why all these bad things have been happening to him. He's lost his money, he's lost his, um, his kids, he's lost his property, and he's been challenging God. He's been shaking his fist in the face of God saying, where are you at? Do you not care about me? Where, why aren't you here? And at the very end, God shows up, and it's, unfortunately we're only going to read these 11 verses, but it's basically three chapters of God not answering his question. God not telling him why bad things have happened to him. But God just saying, and God's not being gentle either with him, God just saying, I'm God and you're not, so trust me. This is the very first part of it. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. This is uh, definitely sarcasm here. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistle reading is from 2 Corinthians 6. Uh, so we've been reading through 2 Corinthians uh, the past few months and uh, you'll know that one of the things, the main thing Paul's doing in 2 Corinthians is telling the church at Corinth I actually am an apostle of Jesus Christ, and you should listen to me instead of the super apostles. That's what he calls them. Guys who are dynamic and engaging and are powerful uh, public speakers and do miracles and have lots of money and are super attractive. And the church at Corinth has started following these guys who are taking their money and dehumanizing them. And Paul is saying, you should follow me. And then the church at Corinth says, well, we need letters of recommendation from you. And Paul says, you're kidding me, right? Like, you're my letter of recommendation. Remember, I came to your city, I preached the gospel, and you came to faith. You are my letters of recommendation. Here he's going to make reference to a different type of letter of recommendation that he has, which shows that he is a true apostle. Working together with him, with God, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now's the favorable time. Behold, now's the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Now he's, he's going to commend himself. He's going to, here's, here's our letters of recommendation. By great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, 
kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us. You're restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
you stand for the reading of the gospel? Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 4. On that day, so this is uh, right after the reading from last week where Jesus was teaching the two parables and he was standing in the boat just offshore. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. So he was standing there teaching in the boat and they just left right from there. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. So a story about, this is a very familiar story to a lot of you, a story about a great storm on the Sea of Galilee, that this is a, 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 pretty, a pretty common phenomenon even now. Um, there's a, a word that sailors on the sea, that fishermen on the Sea of Galilee today have, uh, they call it the shark, the, uh, the words for these uh, storms. So the Sea of Galilee sits a couple hundred feet below sea level, warm and muggy, not dead sea level warm and muggy, but warm and muggy. But then it rises up real tall to a mountain range, several thousand feet, and cold air comes down off of that. And there are lots of storms on the Sea of Galilee. And so um, this is happening, and um, uh, Jesus calms the storm. He says, uh, here it says, peace be still. That's uh, from the uh, um, it's King James Version language, which just sounds kind of like calm and soothing. It's actually more along the lines in Greek, it's more like in your face than that. It's more like stop and be quiet. Stop, be quiet. Um, Jesus calms it and they're saved. If you were one of Jesus, like if you were hearing this story originally, I, we've lost this just because, I don't know, we think about these, we've read these stories since we were, a lot of us since we were little kids and so you just kind of lose this. But uh, think about if you were reading this or hearing this story for the first time. This story has definite Jonah flavor to it, doesn't it? Like, there's a lot of parallels between this and the story of Jonah. You know, uh, two boats out in a storm about to be swamped. One's in the Mediterranean Sea, that's in, with Jonah. One's on the Sea of Galilee here. Uh, everybody on board is, is uh, in, in immediate danger of drowning and dying. The two main characters, uh, Jonah and Jesus, both sleeping in the boat during the middle of the storm. That's probably the most noticeable parallel. Jonah's asleep because... Well, do you remember uh, a couple years ago, we worked, for those of you who are here, a couple years ago, we, we worked through the book of Jonah, and we talked about like some of the signs that Jonah was struggling with depression. Jonah was running from the Lord, and then um, if, if any of you struggle with depression, I have, you'll know that there's a lot of sleepiness that happens, a lot of uh, uh, just, it's, it's kind of a poor man's getting drunk, right? Uh, one way to deal with depression is to kind of mask the pain with uh, with chemicals, uh, one way to do it is just to take lots of naps. Uh, Jonah, running from the Lord in the middle of a storm, he's just running from his humanity. He's down in the bottom of the boat uh, sleeping. Jesus, though, is sleeping for a completely different reason. He's sleeping because he's comfortable that the kingdom of God, in spite of a squall on the Sea of Galilee, the kingdom of God is going to go forward. 
Jesus can sleep peaceful that that's going to happen. Do you remember last week our reading in verse uh, 27? It was a reading, um, if you've got your Bibles open, it's back up in verse 27. In the parable about the seed that grew at night, uh, Jesus says in there, the farmer goes and he plants the seed. Remember, he says the seed is the kingdom of God in the story. And the farmer sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He, not, he knows not how. The farmer goes to sleep at night. Doesn't He's not sitting there trying to make the seed grow. He's actually in his bed sleeping. And he's comfortable because the seed's going to grow. It's going to do what it's going to do. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus can sleep in the boat because the kingdom of God is going to do what the kingdom of God does. And it doesn't need him to be awake freaking out about a storm. However, however bad the storm is. So, two guys in a boat sleeping in a storm. Both of them. The people in the boat wake him up and say, hey, you got to fix this problem here. Aren't you worried about this? Jonah, of course, knows that the way to fix the problem is to tell them, like, this storm is happening because I'm rebelling against God, and so you're going to have to throw me overboard. Jesus wakes up to command the storm to be quiet, and he does it in a weird way. He says, actually here, it says he rebukes. In verse 39, Jesus wakes up and rebukes the wind and says to the sea, peace be still. So rebuke, that's a word that Mark uses when Jesus is casting out demons. Like in, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is in a synagogue, and there's, in Capernaum there's a guy who comes in, and he's demon-possessed. And the demons, the guy says, I know who you are to Jesus. You're the Holy One, uh, uh, the, son, the uh, Holy One, the King of Israel, Holy One, Son of God, one of those. And Jesus rebukes him and says, basically, same thing, peace be still, be quiet and come out of him. So Jesus is treating the storm the same way he treats a demon. That's why the disciples are shocked. This guy has authority to cast out demons. Okay, we can, well, that's cool. But now the guy's talking to the weather and changing it. So Jesus and Jonah both deal with the problem in different ways. Of course, there's a big, strong parallel that doesn't come out right here. But later on, Jesus is going to be talking to some guys, and they're going to say, we, we might believe that you're the Messiah, but we kind of need to see a little bit more proof can you do one more miracle for us to show us that you're the Messiah? And Jesus says, I've been doing miracles all the time and you haven't believed. I'm not going to give you any more signs except for I'm going to give you one sign, the sign of the prophet Jonah. Just as Jonah was thrown overboard and was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man, so I will be buried in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. This is the parallel here, is that Jonah says to the people on the boat, Throw me overboard, I'll die to save your life. Jesus dies on the cross to save our lives. Both Jonah and Jesus die to save the lives of other people. Jonah and Jesus, a very, very strong connection here. And we should hear all of those connections when we read this story. We should hear all of these connections when we read this story. This isn't, um, it's not just Jonah though. The Old Testament is filled with stories and images of scary, chaotic, near deaths by water, only to be rescued through that. In fact, if you go back to Genesis 1, verse 2, it's the second verse in the Bible, right? You see the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. So here, here's the image. You have, this is before creation, you have the world, and it's covered with water. In the ancient world, Water, the sea, is chaotic, it's scary, it's where monsters come from. In fact, in the book of Revelation, when the beast comes on the earth, it rises up out of the sea. 
It's because the sea is the place of chaos in the ancient mindset. So in Genesis 1-2, you have this rough place of chaos. And then the Holy Spirit comes and broods over it. And then along with the Word of God and with the image of God in Adam and Eve, brings order and purpose and meaning and life to creation. Chaos turned into order. You have water being shaped and fashioned by God in Genesis 1 to create the world that we live in now. Marred by the fall, of course. You have the same sort of story, although not as primeval as that, in uh, the the Noah flood story, right? You have uh, God wanting to turn the earth back again into Genesis 1-2 to cover the earth back up with water. However, he saves some people in that water by putting them on an ark. You have the same sort of story in the Exodus story. The children of Israel, fleeing from slavery, rush out into the wilderness, chased by the army of Pharaoh, cornered by water, nowhere to go. The army's coming to kill them. The sea behind them, if they walk into that, they're going to drown, right? God opens up the sea, and they go through, and they part, and they're saved through water. The water destroys God's enemies and rescues them. This is a common theme in the Old Testament, that water is scary, It's a place of death. It's a place of the unknown. But God saves people through the water. And this story here fits into that category as well. There's, you know, they're on the Sea of Galilee and they're in a little boat, probably uh, roughly uh, 25 feet long. Uh, We have actually, we found a typical first century fishing, not we, me and you, but uh, human beings, found buried in the mud of the Sea of Galilee, a typical first century fishing boat. It's about 25 feet long seven or eight feet wide, about four feet deep from keel to the gunnels. And they're out, they're out in that and they're about to die until uh, Jesus, Jesus saves them. This is a fear, of course, that we still have, that you and I still have. Um, this, but, but this is not going to be primarily about just water, but water is a fear that we still have. The fear of, I, I, don't, I, do, I think that everybody does this, right? Like whether you step onto a paddle boat uh, at Forest Park, or whether you you know walk up the gangway on a cruise that you are you you are going on, I think everybody has the thought like, what am I going to do if this thing flips, or what am I going to do if this thing sinks? And we, we all have that. Water is a good example of this, but there's we all there's lots of parts of our life that are chaotic, and we you know how am I going to how am I going to live in this chaotic situation? But water is definitely one of them. And what we do is we have, these, we have these ways of rationally grappling with it and saying it's going to be okay. So, you know, maybe, maybe you're out on the lake in a canoe and you're like, okay, if this thing flips, I'm a pretty good swimmer. It's not that big of a lake. I'll probably be okay. Maybe, you're, maybe you're, you and your family are at Forest Park and you're going to go on the paddle boats and you've got some little kids with you and you think, well, this, this thing could flip. It's quite possible. Probably pretty hard to flip a paddle boat. But with a bunch of kids, who knows? But it's comforting to know that the, that the lake at Forest Park is what, like maybe three or four feet deep, and so you can probably just stand up in it. You walk onto a, a cruise, an, a, an ocean liner, and you think, okay, some highly paid nautical engineer designed this ship, right? And I can see a bunch of, uh, a b- bunch of lifeboats along the side, and it's going to be okay. Very, very small likelihood that I'm going to drown here today. But we all tell ourselves that. We all run through those scenarios in our head. We go through the scenario, and then we have reasons for why it's going to be okay. Many of them logical and absolutely true reasons. This is the, the uh, 
Titanic phenomenon, right? Everybody knows about the Titanic in our culture. Um, Titanic, very famous ship. Um, a lot of people died on the Titanic, struck an iceberg and went down. The Titanic, are you guys aware of this? Here's interesting trivia. You can pull this out at your next uh, dinner party. The Titanic is not the greatest loss of life in U.S. maritime history. There have been shipwrecks where more people died than in the Titanic that nobody in here has ever heard of. I'm throwing myself out on a limb here because somebody's bound to have heard of it. Has anybody ever heard of the SS Sultana? Uh, you don't have to tell me if you have or not. A steam, a steamboat in the Civil War. More people died. It exploded, uh, carrying Union prisoners of war back up from the south, back up to the north at the end of the war. Explodes. More people died on the SS Sultana sinking in the Mississippi River than died on the Titanic. But nobody's ever heard of the SS Sultana, except for the few of you that I see kind of giving knowing looks to the people sitting next to you. You get bonus points today uh, for those two of you. I know who you are. I watched it happen. And I'll give you something special at the end of the service. I, I don't know. I don't have anything. Stick a gun, maybe. Um, why is it that we remember the Titanic and not the Sultana? Well, you know why. Because after thousands of years of, of going onto the water in canoes, rafts, huge ocean liners, when the Titanic was built, we humans had finally figured out how to build an unsinkable ship. A ship that could not sink. It wasn't some Yahoo saying, oh man, that's a big ship, I bet that couldn't sink. It was actually peer-reviewed magazines produced by nautical engineers who were saying, we've finally done it. we finally produced the unsinkable ship. And then, of course, it sinks. Why? Because chaos always wins. Because the things that we say are going to keep us from death. This is an unsinkable ship. This lake is pretty shallow. None of them, at the end of the day, are completely reassuring. And what they are, in fact, those rationalities, what they are, in fact, are ways to try and make God the last resort. Now, hold on. I'm not, I'm not judging here. We all do this. So I'm not saying this is not going to be a sermon about, so make God your first resort. Actually, it's, it's, it's dang near impossible as fallen human beings. We all do this, right? So uh, we figure out ways, whatever chaos that you're living in, we figure out ways to solve it without God. Again, that sounds like I'm about to preach at you, like, don't try to do that. I'm not, just listen to what I'm saying. So when Angela was pregnant with Harry, um, somebody gave us, and, and to this day I hate them for it, of the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting, which, which everybody who has kids has, has, had, has read that book, right? And if you haven't had kids, I'll give you a copy so that you can experience what I've experienced. So basically, what, what to expect when you're expecting, and then what to expect when, what's the, what's the next version? What to expect when you have a baby or whatever. I don't remember the name of that one. Basically, it tells you like the steps to take to make sure that your baby doesn't die, while simultaneously assuring you that, in fact, your baby is right now dying. Like, you're doing everything wrong. Like, it, your baby probably has cancer. You can't pay attention. It's probably going to roll over on its stomach and die of SIDS in the night. Like, I spent, like, Angela's entire pregnancy, part of this, too, is that we wanted kids for a while, and then she, she didn't get pregnant until later. I spent Angela's entire pregnancy, like, freaked out that we were going to lose the baby. And then I spent Harry's entire, like, infancy worrying that he was going to die in his crib, and I need to go check on him and just, 
Like, is he still breathing, Angela? You better go look. I haven't heard him cry in a while. I spent his entire, entire youth, you know, worrying that, like, the car seat wasn't strapped in tight enough. I spent his entire teenage years up so, so far to this point worrying when he goes out with his friends, like, well, I, I like, put the tracking app on him. Like, I'm going to have a conversation with him about 14 different things he needs to know when he's out of my sight and with his high school friends. And then I forget the, the two, those two really super important things I forgot to tell him. And, like, he's not away, and I certainly can't call him and remind him of, like, you know, how to say no to bad friends or whatever when he's with his friends. I'm told by people that it doesn't get any better when they leave home. It doesn't get any better when they get into middle age. You spend your entire life thinking, like, there's this life I can't control. I have no control over it, but I want control over it. And I try to get control over it. It's this way about everything. Like, I want to know for a fact that if I do good work, I'm going to get the raise. That I'm not going to lose my job if I'm honest and I'm diligent and I'm pleasant around the workplace and I turn in good projects. I want to know that I'm going to have that job, that my financial, that, that my financial security is going to be set. I get sick and I want to know. When, when, when the doctor tells me, you're sick and it's not good, I want to know, like, okay, what's the treatment options available? What's the percentage of success with the different treatment options? What's the percentage of success of people who get to my stage of the disease when they found the disease? I want to know. And what I'm doing is, again, this is going to sound bad. What I'm doing is, like I'm saying, again, all those things are good, right? Like you should like, put the tracking apps on your teenage kid's phone. Um, go to the doctor when you're sick. I'm not saying, this isn't a sermon about like, give up all those plans and just trust God. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is our default mode is fallen human beings is to want God, but as a last resort. Like, if medicine's going to take care of it, then I'm cool. If medicine doesn't take care of it, then I might have to go to God. And that's the way I want childhood to be, too. Like, if what to expect when you're expecting will make sure that I have a healthy, my, my wife will have a healthy birth, then that's fine. If I find out that there's something bad wrong with the baby, then I move to God. And, and I know that this is an exaggeration. We're all the time praying for our kids at the same time that we're worrying about them. You know, we're all the time, we step on board the ship for the cruise, and we're like saying, like, God, protect us on this trip, but also I hope the nautical engineers did their job when they planned this boat. We're all the time doing all those things, but if I know that the ship is safe, I'm not necessarily praying for it all the time or trusting God for it until I find out that we struck an iceberg. And that's when I turn to God and I say, like, God, I need you. So, see what I'm saying? I believe in God, but I like it when he's the last resort. It's bad news when I have to call on him. That's the position that the disciples are in. The position of, I want to know it's going to be okay. If I say it that way, we'll all get it. You want to know that it's going to be okay. Your job, your health, your kids, your friend's situation. You want to, if you're single, you want to know that there's somebody out there for you. You want to know these things. But you can't know those things because the only person who can know those things is God. The only person who knew whether that boat was going to sink or not sink when Jesus and the disciples got on was God. You can't know. You can't know that your kids are going to survive you. You can't know that. You can't know that you're going to make it through the cancer. Only God knows that. So we want to know that. And God is, for those of you who are Christians, God is there, but he's a last resort kind of God. Again, I know that sounds like I'm about to preach at you and say, let's flip that thing around and make him the first resort. There's a certain... Yeah, we should do that. But that's not what this story is about, okay? What this story is about is people for whom he was the last resort. And frequently when he's the last resort, once we get down to that point, once the medicine doesn't work, 
once we can see on the app that he's not where he's supposed to be. Once you do the project and you nail it, and then the other person gets the promotion, at that point we're at last resort. And by the time that you and I, Christians, some of you, non-Christians, by the time that you and I get to last resort land, we frequently, like Job, are shaking our fist at him and saying, why don't you care? Where are you at? Like, if you're such a big, strong God, why are bad things happening to me? That's what the disciples do. Look down at verse 38. Jesus is in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they wake, wake, they wake him up and they say to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? It's actually, okay, so, so nerd stuff, it's actually a rhetorical question with an implied, in Greek they can do this, with an implied yes answer, which makes it, when I read it to you like that, you'll see it's actually kind of sarcastic. They say to him, literally in Greek, Teacher, you care that we're dying, don't you? It's, it's really kind of, uh, you know, kind of snarky, the way they say it. You, ca- you care that we're dying, don't you? Wake up. Jesus gets up and says, stop, be quiet, to the sea. And then the sea is silent. They're amazed. And Jesus says to them, verse 40, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? No, they didn't. He was their last resort. They'd been sailing for how many years had these guys been sailing? They knew what boats worked. They, they knew the risk. They knew how boats worked. He was their last resort. Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So, so here's what I'm going to do. I am not telling you that the key now is to make him your first resort. And if you trust him, he will save you from the storms of life and you'll be happy. Why am I not going to say that? Because that's not what the disciples took away from it. The disciples were scared of him. Who the heck is this who talks to the weather and the weather listens? That's what they took from it. So now let's do this. When we get to the point where we realize that our techniques don't work, that we've read all the manuals on how to do the thing, that we've taken all the steps to make sure that everything goes safely, and it still doesn't work and we're about to sink, how do you know that you're going to be saved? And the answer is, if you have the faith that the disciples have, let me say this once and then I'll explain it. If you have the faith that the disciples have, you will be saved. What kind of faith do they have? The kind of faith that says to Jesus, you care that I'm dying, right? Now wait a minute, you say. The lesson should be, don't be sarcastic with Jesus. Lovingly trust him. Okay, that's fine. You should do that. But you're not going to. Because every single one of us, when pushed to the wall, We'll pull the theodicy card. We'll say to God, where are you at? I've served you all my life. Or I've given money to the church. Or I tried to be a good dad. Or I, whatever it is that you do. Where are you at? Why are you not helping me? We're all going to do it. And when you do that, when your back is pushed to the wall and you say to God, God, where are you at? You just completely ignored me. You know what he's going to do? He's going to save you. Because that's what he does. This will be my last point. I'm going to unpack it. It's going to take a few minutes. But this is the last point of the sermon. The faith that saves is the faith that says to God, I need you. It's not the faith that, you know, they're not sitting in the bottom of the boat like looking at Jesus and singing, I am Jesus' little lamb. They're ticked off and they're scared. And they wake him up and even when he saves them, they're still scared. They're even more scared, but of something different now. But you know what? That's the faith that saves. The faith that saves is Job. Can I go back to the Job reading again? Job is mad at God through that whole book. Job loses everything. Job shakes his fist at the sky and he says to God, if you're such a powerful God, 
why don't you come down here and talk to me? Then I could prove to you that I'm right and that you're wrong. And you know what God does at the end? He says to Job's friend, Job's my guy. He's righteous in my eyes. His friends were like, like reading him theology, like quoting him good stuff from Scripture, like explaining to him the link between evil and pain. All this like good theological stuff. And at the end, God rejects them and accepts Job. Why? Because Job, Job didn't like God, but he didn't like God. He went to God with his dislike. He went to God with his lack of faith. That's the faith that saves. So we have this notion in the Christian church that saving faith is, I'm going to give you three options here that we all kind of bounce around back and forth, and some of us lean more towards one or the other, that aren't necessarily, when we talk about saving faith, it's not what we mean. First of all is rationalism. We're all children of the Enlightenment. We all like systems in theology, some of you more than others. A church like ours, that it's, you know, the, the, the LCMS is more on the theological spectrum, very serious about theology, which is a wonderful blessing. The danger, of course, is to think that knowing theology is faith. Like, I believe in the Apostles' Creed, and that's saving faith. Or, I know the small catechism, and that's saving faith. And what I'm not going to say is that that stuff is unimportant. But what I am going to say is that that's not, what the, that's not where the disciples are at. The disciples aren't saying, I know the great truths of the faith. The disciples are not saying that. They're saying, don't you even care that we're about to drown? But they're saying it to the right guy. Second option, emotionalism. Romanticism came in during the Enlightenment and reacted against rationalism by introducing in every branch of life emotionalism. The Christian church has not been, um, uh, is, is, is not been able to avoid that as well. This notion that like saving faith is deeply felt. Like, I know, I, I can just feel there's nothing between my soul and the Savior. Like, I, I sense that God is close to me. That's good when you sense that, but you'll know, just like rationalism, sometimes that's not at the front of your mind. When you find out you have cancer, most of us don't say the Apostles' Creed. Most of us don't feel close to God. You might, but that's not the bottom line. Pragmatism is the third one. Christians are beset with this. Does it work? Does Christian faith make me feel less guilty for my sins? Does my Christian faith make me more happy and well-rounded? Does my Christian faith allow me to have my prayers answered? Well, you'll know that sometimes yes and sometimes no. That's not, if you're depending upon that for your saving faith, same as if you depend upon your intellectual understanding of Christianity or your emotional embrace of a relationship with God, it comes and goes. It's never there. The bottom line is, is if you're in the same boat with Jesus, you won't die. That's the bottom line. When Jesus says to the disciples, don't you have faith? What he means is this. Do you think that God would become flesh to come down here and drown in a boating accident? Do you think that that's what, that that's what would happen? If you believe that I'm God in flesh, you've got to know that when you're with me, you're not going to die at this, at this stage of the game. That's what you have to know. You, you don't have to... It's not even saying you have to like God. It's not even saying you don't have to be sarcastic in your prayers or snarky or ticked off. What it is saying, though, is that when you cry out for help, when you cry out in frustration, it's Jesus in your boat that you're crying out to. That's the way to be saved. Let me give you three super quick things. Because some of you are going to ask the question, well, how can I know that like Jesus is in my boat? Let me give you three quick answers. One, you've been baptized. Baptism, the baptismal imagery is all about that. Life through death and water. 
you drown in the water, you're brought back to life in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You've been baptized, that's God's promise to you that you are his. Two, you're here. You are with Jesus right now. Jesus says, wherever two or three of you are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. Jesus promises in 1 Peter 4 that when his word is preached, it's actually an oracle of Christ. It's Christ himself preaching. And some of you are going to say, well, so you're saying everybody in the room is in the boat with Jesus? Like, I actually don't know all of you, but if you're not in there, you probably don't care about what I'm saying now. If you're concerned about it, you're in the boat with Jesus. Here's the third thing. How can you know is the wrong question. Knowledge is what got us in trouble in the first place. Wanting to know for certain that the boat that I'm getting on won't sink is something that we can't have. I want you to know that Jesus loves you. I want you to know that Jesus is in your boat. But at the end of the day, you're not always going to know that. But you know who does know it? Jesus knows it. Even when the disciples were scared, Jesus wasn't. Even when the disciples thought they were going to drown, Jesus knew he was going to save them. Look, you might not know if Jesus is in your boat, but Jesus knows that he's in your boat. And he says, I love you. And at the end of the day, I'm not, I'm not, not, not encouraging you to take a certain mindset or try to like really believe. Just go to Jesus. That's saving faith. Okay, stand up and let's pray, then we'll have communion together. Father, let's pray. Father, we love you and we confess that we have not put you first. We confess that we've trusted our own systems before you, that we've trusted our own plans before you, that we have uh, um, logical, rational things that we lean on in lieu of you. Uh, God, will you please forgive us? Will you uh, save us in spite of our lack of faith? Will you be in the boat with us? Uh, we need you so much, and we want to trust you so much. We want to grow in our faith. We want to believe that when we're with you that, that, that we're where we need to be, where you want us to be. But we need your Holy Spirit to forgive us for not being that and to build up faith in our hearts towards you to believe in that. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray this morning for uh, those of us who are on the mission trip in Minnesota right now. We pray that uh, they all would be uh, experiencing the glory of being on mission with you, that they would see you doing great and incredible things. Uh, Father, I pray, I guess uh, most of all, I pray that you would be doing great and incredible things in them, that you would be stirring up in their hearts, all of them, that you would be stirring up in their hearts a real taste and thirst for seeing you work, for seeing your gospel not just be an intellectual exercise or content for private devotions, but to be actually active working in the world, fixing your creation. And Father, will you use that to spur them on to a lifetime of love and service, to a lifetime of kingdom work, to a lifetime of being on mission with your son Jesus, Lord, in your mercy. Father, today uh, we thank you for our fathers and we praise you for the men that you put in our lives to raise us. And we thank you for uh, our good fathers and our fathers who weren't so good. And uh, all of our fathers, all of us who are fathers who uh, are frequently not good fathers. And we pray that our relationships with our dads would point us to you. Our relationship with our great father in heaven. And that whether it's uh, 
relationships with good fathers, which stirs up in us uh, a love for an even better father, or when our fathers are bad, or for some of us who've had fathers that have abandoned us, fathers that have hurt us, this desire to have a father who, who is a good father, who completely loves and accepts us. May our fathers, whoever they are, and may we as fathers, may we point our children, may we be pointed to you, our great Father, who loves us and accepts us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we actually can only pray these things because you are our Father. And in your Son, our brother, Jesus Christ, you've made us your daughters and sons. And so we come to your throne room asking you to answer these requests because you're good. And like your son told us, even those of us who are bad fathers, when our kids ask us for fish, we don't give them a stone. And so we know that you will take great delight in answering these prayers that we bring before you this morning. And so we bring them before you by the power of your Holy Spirit, but in the name of our brother, your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. In your bulletin is printed the words to the Apostles' Creed. Say those with me now in confession of faith if you can. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name the prayer that He taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
Please stand. And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let Your servant depart in peace according to Your Word. For my eyes have seen Your salvation, which You have prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of Your people Israel. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. Amen. Look around. Find somebody that you don't recognize or somebody that you haven't talked to recently and start building that community in Jesus Christ. Go in peace.